Welcome to Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. This programme features a talk from a conference that the WFA held with the British Commission for Military History on the 1st of April 2017. The British Commission for Military History is an organisation which aims to promote through research, publication and discussion an understanding of British military history. For more information about the BCMH, go to their website at bcmh.org.uk. The joint conference focused on the armies of 1917. It examined the military forces of the Allies and the Central Powers. In particular, it discussed their tactical and technical advances, the internal issues affecting each army, such as their morale, and also military operations such as the Battles of Arras, Third Ypres and Cambrai. In this episode, Dr Paul Harris gives a talk on the British Army staff system in 1917. Well, good afternoon. Um, my name's uh, Dr Paul Harris. I'm going to speak about uh, the British Army staff. And um, some of you may have to forgive me because when you talk about the staff, there may be some of you, there may be a lot of you in the audience who think I'm trying to defend the indefensible. And one has to say that the the red tabs, the um, separate leave boats that the staff had certainly gave a perception that they were very much apart from the rest of the army. And then we have the other tales, the other tales of the staff officers sat in their opulent chateau, sipping their claret in a comfortable armchair, some distance away from the front line, with no recognition of what on earth was going on there. Shocking. Shocking indeed. But I would argue this is not a reflection of the British staff. Uh, during the First World War at all. Some of these ideas may be partially true, but on the whole, they are not a reflection of what the staff did. But really today, uh, this is not the direction in which I'm going to make my case. Um, I'm really going to look at other areas. So what am I going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to argue that the staff had significant challenges earlier in the war and certainly by the time they get to 1917 they have some very significant challenges. Um, By 1917 the war the staff were fighting and the forces they were managing were very different from the early years of the war. We've got a huge expansion in the number of posts in the army brought about by both the huge expansion of the army and changes in structure as well. New functions are introduced, such as artillery and engineering staff, and they very much reflected the industrial warfare that was now being uh, waged in 1917. So what I'm going to do is examine these changes and the obstacles that the staff needed to surmount in order to put their contribution into some context. I'm going to argue today that their evolution came to fruition in 1917, uh, which placed the staff on a firm professional footing to deal with the rigours of the final year of the war. So what have been the story so far? Uh, I can only obviously cover this in pretty superficial detail. Um, So 
what I wanted to do was briefly cover. In 1914, I think that the staff performed generally pretty well under difficult circumstances. Uh, many of them had lengthy military service records, but they had very little experience of working in staff teams, especially at core level. Very few of them had worked at core level in 1914. And by the end of 1914, a war of movement has changed to static warfare. The staff are trying to adapt to this. And it, this was really to shape the staff until 1918. The staff of 1914 were nearly all staff college graduates and regular soldiers, but this was starting to change. Moving into 1915, we get Second Ypres, we get the spring battles, the British Army fight. There was some poor staff work here. It was a difficult year. Uh, the army uh, continues to expand. The staff continued to have to adjust to the new warfare. And uh, there's an influx of new staff that need training. Um, and in February 1915, General Henry Horne uh, bemoaned the continued loss of experienced officers from his staff team and their replacement by, I quote, inexperienced officers from home, unquote. So it's a time of great flux. You've got teams changing frequently, a lack of stability. Um, Captain William Trevor, he was a staff officer with 50th Division, writes home to his father in 1915, and I quote, things change very rapidly out there, and I might find myself being posted to some other staff before I know where I am, unquote. 1916, the staff now have to deal with the demands of a mass army, an organisation nearly 20 times larger than the original expeditionary force. We have new experienced formations of volunteers arriving. They need staff officers. Uh, the learning process of the Somme takes place. Staff are still being moved around. It's very difficult for teams to gel. The official history outlined the dilemma of these inexperienced staff officers that were dealing with inexperienced commanders. And it said, in some cases, over-anxious staff officers nursed inexperienced brigade and battalion commanders too much, thereby curbing and discouraging initiative. But on the other hand, proper guidance and help from the staff was not always forthcoming when it was most needed. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with the kind of quotes, and we heard some of them this morning. Uh, Michael gave an example of some poor staff work. Tom Thorpe gave an example of... Um, uh, a soldier's uh, discontent and cynicism uh, about the problems of when they were uh, admonished for not saluting the staff. Um, we have a quote just before the Somme uh, of an officer who really wanted to know what on earth was the qualification for getting into the staff. He could see no system whatsoever um, for being a member of the staff. And he says, we cannot make it out, the system, if there is any system, by which these appointments are made. The chief essentials appear to be a public school education and an ingratiating manner. <laughs> Any such things as character, military knowledge or leadership apparently do not enter into the contract at all. Uh, now this is one person's opinion um, and uh, I would argue um, it is an opinion that really 
is not founded with evidence behind it. So, the staff college corps. Um, at the outbreak of war, there were 31 general staff in the British Army. They were all regulars. They all had been um, to staff college um, at either Camberley or Quetta in India. The average age was 43. Now, the staff developed around that core, but soon, very soon, things start to change. The staff college closes, so we've got no new officers coming through. Many existing staff get moved on to command posts, and while others become casualties. So casualties were not the main source of shortage. It's really this migration of trained staff to command roles and the growth in the number of staff posts. Uh, as John Bourne has observed, um, the army was really de-skilled at this period and has to learn again. So this huge growth in the army means candidates have to be found for the newly created staff posts. But where are you going to get these officers from? Um, a staff populated by regular soldiers who were Camberley graduates became a memory. Events move very quickly. Now, don't worry, there are only two graphs. This is one of them, there's one other. Um, I put this up just to show you and give you some idea of the proportion um, of PSD staff. Um, and you can see that um, all the new officers that were coming through, um, certainly in 1915 and particularly by 1917, they diluted the percentage of officers who actually had a staff college qualification. Uh, the numbers for the general staff uh, from 1916 to 1918, only 11% of new joiners uh, actually had a staff college qualification. So who were the staff officers by 1917? Well, many of them, they were regimental officers, many of whom had seen combat, most of whom had commanded small units, from platoons and companies up to battalion, most were regular officers. Many officers who had recovered from wounds were moved into the staff. Um, and so you can see that this graph here, what it's showing is how the number, uh, the percentage of uh, Camberley or Quetta graduates drops over the course of the war. By 1918, it's, it's only 20%. It's pretty small. So it's clear that from, from 1916 onwards, the majority of uh, general staff had not been to staff college um, at all. Um, the other thing that we've had happen is changes in establishment. And what I mean by that is we've had a lot of artillery and engineering staff coming in as well. Um, so not only do we have more formations, but we have more staff in each formation, more staff posts. This was particularly the case at Army, at Corps, and at GHQ. But these artillery and engineering posts by 1917, this is very much a reflection of the kind of war which is then being fought in 1917. Um, now, by the end of 1917, these artillery and engineering staff actually represent nearly half of the total general staff. Nearly half. It's an enormous proportion. And these are all people who have come in during the course um, of the war. So we very much have um, a changing staff. Um, so um, 
Major General Tim Harrington, picture of him here, possibly uh, one of the best known uh, general staff officers during the war, had a very good reputation, worked with uh, Plumer in Second Army. Um, he addressed the senior officer school at Aldershot in February 1917, and this is what he said. He, out, he was outlining how the staff had changed and the difficulties they now faced. And he said this, at first, a corps had as a staff one brigadier general, general staff, a first grade general staff officer, a second grade general staff officer, and a third grade general staff officer. But at the present moment, a corps has exactly one fully qualified general staff officer, and an army has two. Everything else has had to be improvised since the war started, which of course is no mean achievement. So I think when you're looking at the criticism of the staff, you've got to take into context what has been going on since the start of the war. Um, and the situation they find themselves in, in 1917. We have got a plethora of new posts. An influx of new officers are needed to fill these posts. Um, so, in the general staff, at the end of 1914, as an example, you have 82 posts. By 19, uh, 1915, 308. By 1917, 336 posts an enormous expansion in the number of posts. Where are you going to get these officers from? Um, so you are looking at populating a huge number of posts to manage the demands of a mass army. And here is that staff. This is the last graph, I promise you. Here is that expansion of staff. Now, this is all staff. Uh, this is the general staff, uh, the quartermaster branch, uh, the aid branch, across all formations as well. You can see the huge expansion in line with the expansion in the British Army. Let's try and get that into context, those numbers. Um, there is an 11-fold increase in the general staff. Now, it's less than the 20-fold increase of serving troops, but closer to the 14-fold increase in infantry during the war. How on earth do you accommodate such an expansion without disruption? Well, in 1915, Lord Haldane contended, quote, when we are comparing our army with armies that have, a, uh, that have had a general staff for 100 years or more, as is the case with the German army, no doubt we have been at a disadvantage. And no doubt our disadvantage has been the greater because we have had to expand our army in France to something like five times the size at which it started. So we are now looking at staff for a mass army. Um, the official history has observed um, that to fill the, the ever-increasing number of staff appointments, good regimental officers, often to the detriment of their units, were taken. Um, so this is a difficult dilemma for the army as many of the most talented officers were taken to fill gaps in the staff. And so sometimes strengthening the staff potentially weakens the fighting formations. When the pool of staff, olive, of, uh, staff college, I beg your pardon, graduates was exhausted, the army turns to regular officers from across the regiments. So we get former regulars present also in the form of dugouts, this is retired officers. 
coming in to the staff. A limited number of territorials and volunteers begin to infiltrate the lower levels of the staff by about 1917. But I think a lot of the regulars were very concerned um, about this. Um, <clears throat> here's one example, uh, Lord Locke. He was the senior staff officer with Sixth Corps. So when two new officers joined his staff, he was rather apprehensive. Describing the former adjutant of the Fifth Lancers, Captain Alastair MacDougall, as, quote, pale and lacking in energy, but I'm told capable. Uh, the other candidate, Captain Arthur Grasset, he was a Canadian-born engineer from 49th Division. He was, quote, good, keen and plenty of ability. But Locke said neither of them had had any staff training. So I have to start from the beginning. It's going to give me plenty to think about, especially these days. Now, both of those officers remained on the staff until the end of the war. They were typical of regular officers moved into the staff and trained on the job. So let me put one point to you right now. If you think the staff had no idea about combat and the front line, the evidence contradicts this. Because the evidence tells us that most of the staff were regular officers brought in from the regiments who had been in the front line earlier on in the war. So to say that the staff knew nothing of the front line, I think the evidence certainly would contradict that. Um, moving on. Here's an example of an individual. Um, some of you may recognise this person. This is E.M. Grigg. Now, E.M. Grigg, I put Grigg up here because um, he was not a regular soldier. Um, he did, a, he worked on the editorial staff of the Times from 1903 to 1914, schooled at Winchester, attended New College, Oxford. Clearly an in intelligent, talented individual. Um, at the outbreak of war, Grigg joins the Grenadier Guards and begins uh, as a general staff officer, third grade in the Guards. Uh, then he, he attends a staff course in France um, from October 1916 to January 1917. He works his way up the career ladder. By 1918, Grigg becomes GSO1 of the Guards Division. So if you like, the chief staff officer of the Guards Division. Um, but this was unusual. This was pretty unusual. Um, the gradual, there was a gradual migration of non-regular officers into the staff, but it was selective. Uh, many of them served with the uh, uh, Australian, New Zealand or Canadian formations, interestingly, and few of them made their way into higher staff grades. So in effect, you have a glass ceiling in there, um, which ensured that really only regular officers who had attended Camberley made it right up to the top positions. So if you look at the, the highest level, GSO1, 95% of those were regulars. Move down to GSO2, um, and then you get 83% as regulars. But if you go down to the most junior staff position, um, only 42% of those were actually regular soldiers. So you could get into the staff if you were not a regular, but at only at the lower grade. It was very unusual for someone like Grigg, who got up to GSO1. That, that, that was exceptional, really. Um, was that a good thing? I think not. I think in my report book, I'd actually marked the army down on that one. Um, and I'm joined by Cuthbert Hedlund, uh, Cuthbert Hedlund, um, a staff officer himself who was in 
the Bedfordshire Yeomanry before the war, Headlam said this, It is rather absurd that men of intelligence and capacity in civil life who are serving out here should be treated like children and given to understand that they are not considered capable of being employed on third-rate staff billets because they are not professional soldiers. And I think that is a reasonable point. Um, however, of course, you just can't pitch someone into a staff job. Um, uh, at Camberley and Quetta, it was a two-year course, so you can't just get in there and start straight away. But what about learning and training? How did that happen? Well, first of all, what the, the army had to do, uh, they had a system of staff learners. So quite simply, they, they attach untrained, untrained regimental officers to headquarters. They go there, they, have, they serve a short apprenticeship, if you like. Uh, it was really run on an ad hoc basis. By 1917, though, the system becomes formalised, and GHQ send out a fiat uh, in the summer of 1917 to very much formalise this system. Um, they ran a series of staff training schools in France and in Britain, uh, working in tandem with this learner system. Um, they ran during the autumn and winter months. Um, the first was in early 1915, and by 1917, that system had been significantly developed um, and formalised. Um, so, how else did staff learn? Well, they learned through the experience of visiting other units, by experiencing the field from, from the French and from the measures put in place by the army, which included short courses, lectures, a series of publications I'm sure you'll be um, aware of, the SS Standard Stationary Pamphlets, um, the after-action reports. Um, these visits to the French were quite interesting because um, while many of the French, uh, British officers were still learning, the French were seen by some as the established professionals. Summed up by one British staff officer who commented thus, their staff work is inferior, infinitely superior to ours. The work is coordinated and logical. We are groping in the dark, unquote. So there were a number of visits to the French um, to discuss artillery techniques, aerial photography, and, and their staff system, amongst other topics. Um, so, I alluded earlier to uh, how, how do you get into the staff? So, um, the appointments and transfer system. Well, um, there was a good deal of patronage in here. There was meant to be a staff roster with the military secretary, um, but there's really not much evidence of, of, of that surviving as to how staff officers could get in. There could be intervention from senior officers to get the staff officer they wanted. So this was all rather murky, all rather opaque. Um, some staff officers wanted to leave the staff, but they couldn't leave. Their experience was too valuable, um, so they were retained in their posts. Um, the transfer and uh, appointment system really is a subject in itself, but um, yeah, it was a rather murky system, and so I think led to quite a bit of criticism. So really to sum up the profile of the staff, what did the staff look like in 1917? Uh, well, I talked earlier about the, the, this exponential growth there have been in the staff, from just over 200 to more than 1,400. What had happened to average age? Well, during the war as a whole, it was 37. Um, it fell progressively through the war. 
1914, 43. By 1917, only 35. Um, who was the youngest general staff officer? An individual, Captain Alexander Abercrombie, wounded at Hill 60 at Ypres. Then he won the DSO at the Hohenzollern Redoubt later that year. Um, this does not sound like a typical staff officer, surely. Um, but then he's posted to the staff. Staff of First Army in August 1917. He's only 20 years old. He dies of wounds in 1918. Um, the general staff, 91% of them had had pre-war battle experience in 1914. By 1917, that's fallen to about 30%. But you've got to remember, pre-war battle experience in 1914 was the colonial wars the British had been fighting. Um, yes, that had fallen, but many of the individuals who came into the staff had combat experience from the First World War. Um, what about Camberley graduates in 1917? Well, they'd fallen. The percentage of them had fallen from around 90 to 30% in 1917 just 30%. Regular army officers, they made up 90% of the general staff in 1914. By 1917, down to around 65%. So huge changes had taken place. And to conclude that by 1917, we are really looking at an industrialised war machine here. Um, during 1917, the staff have to recognise they're managing a mass army fighting an industrial war. They had, they'd gone through two major battles at Arras and Third Ypres. That's provided them with further invaluable experience in managing large numbers of troops, weapons and supplies. I would emphasise again the fighting in 1917, very different from the opening years of the war. We've got the start of all arms warfare, we've got the transformation of infantry fighting, this huge growth in firepower which is going on, tanks, aircraft, now coming into the picture far more. So I would argue that in 1916 and 17, the army really had re-skilled. Um, the staff had changed in structure. We've got these new specialist officers covering artillery and engineering. A reflection of a war now dominated by artillery and engineers constructing fortifications, railways, etc. So the foundation of an experienced and professional staff was laid in 1917. This was a staff that was ready to cope with the rigours it would encounter in the final year of a war, of the war. A staff that's able to execute consecutive operations, handling large numbers of troops and weapons, particularly artillery, during the hundred days that leads to the German <coughs> surrender. So the staff overcame significant barriers and I would argue laid the foundations for the success that the army achieves in 1917. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.